Memory and desire. Desire and memory. Memory and desire. How they torture us night and morn. Day and night, never leaving us alone, except when we are at peace. Peace. Ah. Peace. There is no peace where there is memory. Where memory is, there also is desire. Most of all, desire. The center of her being was that. She recognized that it meant she was alone. She said in an interview, I've forgotten to whom, but in one of the interviews she gave in later life, she said that I've always been alone, even when my life has been connected with other people. I've always been alone. That was the price she had to pay for being a, an artist and being a woman artist. I don't think it would have been uh, so necessary if she'd been a man. I was born just before this century started. I remember getting this little badge, with a black badge, and somebody, a nurserymaid or somebody, pinning it on to me, and I was all, felt awfully important. And they told me it was the death of the Pope. Oh, oh we were, of course, very religious, uh, very uh, deeply, uh, completely and entirely Catholic family. Uh, I also remember the death of my mother, but that came when I was about five, I think. I remember very well, uh, it was a very brilliant Sunday, and I was taken out of my bed, and there was a lot of strangeness in the house. And I was taken by this maid of ours, the nursery maid, who I was very fond of, called Delia, and uh, dressed very quickly, and taken in a pony and trap out to my aunt's place, a few, a few miles out in the country. And I remember asking Delia what all the disturbance and crying in the house was about and she wouldn't tell me and then I found at my aunt's house in the country my other brothers and sisters who were older than me that were there already they'd been sent out I suppose because everybody knew this was going to happen and I remember it turned out to be Palm Sunday it was a lovely day we were walking around the garden in my aunt's place Shannon View which is now turned into a building estate with lovely old Georgian place the lovely garden we were walking round this place where nobody was paying any attention to us and I kept saying to my sisters and my brother Tom mother is dead and they kept I was only I wasn't five I was five they kept saying stop saying that you dreadful little girl and they they kept abusing me about it and I said I know that mother is dead and I was right <laughs> that's that's a very vivid memory which perhaps the others will contradict but it's true Her mother died when she was a small little girl, and her father thought she'd be happier with her sisters in the convent. And so it was quite fortuitous that she happened to be there. But it meant she was moulded as a growing girl by her life in the convent. And the interplay, she had it during the holidays, but, I mean, the holidays were very short compared with the rest of the year. And uh, I think that... That left her also with with an, an unfailing interest in convent life and in women who choose this way out of the worldly problems that were confronted in, by every woman at this at that stage. And this was a way where a woman could climb up, as I said, somewhere a ladder of opportunity in the hierarchical order of, of great nuns and could have world influence.
So it was another way or one way through which women could become power because this is what she wants for women, power. She wants them, to use the modern word, empowered. And education is another way through which that can be done. Where are you bringing those flowers, Anna? Ah, decorating the stage. You're in Julius Caesar, aren't you? Cassius, isn't it? Well, you have that lean and hungry look. Remind me who was playing Brutus. Norio Dowd, Reverend Mother. Ah, she'll be a plump and weighty Brutus, Norio Dowd. It was Reverend Mother's last day in the convent. The letter had come from the head of the Order of Saint-Famille in Brussels. She would be leaving. Her tenure here had not been altogether successful. English piety was different from the Irish version. Here she had been a queer one, cold, standoffish. She knew what they thought of her. But now that she was leaving, she was sad. What she had once most bitterly desired would now become a sacrifice, another test of her faith. She would return to the mother house, a place full of graves of nuns she had worked with. And, and odd too, because though she was loath to admit it, this child now coming through the bishop's walk, where she was not supposed to, this child Anna was one she had loved in a playful way, for the questioning pure quality she found in her face that rang a happy echo from her own past. She loved her as a mother would, as perhaps even her own mother must have loved her. Do reverend mothers have mothers? Child, why do you ask? I don't know. I just thought it must be a very hard thing to be a nun. Yes, it can be. I thought about being a nun, but not properly. Not for holy reasons. Only because I was frightened. I know, Anna. But a holy reason is the only one. Sometimes even that is hard to be sure about. Do you think I could be a nun? And this, you remember, in Anna, is what Anna wanted. She wanted to be left alone and not to have to make up her mind what she wanted to be for a further stretch of time, and she could get that by going to university. So education is also a very important element, and that would be one reason why she'd be so interested in... Because, as you probably know, uh, the French orders became very influential in Ireland in the latter half of the, second, of the 19th century. I was awfully good at my lessons. I was really was. I loved my lessons, and I had no trouble in doing them at all. Did you win any prizes? I did. I won prizes, and I won exhibitions in the general examinations, the intermediate board, you know, every year. We all did, and all my family, we were very good examinees. And all my sisters before me set me a brilliant example, winning bronze medals and exhibitions. And I made a lot of money every year on those exams, which I put in the post office and had great fun with. Oh, yes, I was quite a star at school. I have some good news for you. You've done astonishingly well this year. I helped choose some of the prize books that we'll be getting. Not that I totally approve of prize giving, but in your case, I must say it is well-deserved. You will be getting a book of Henry Vaughan poems. And though the binding is rather vulgar, but you are good at poems. And when you recite them, you might think of me, for old time's sake. I learned them all for you before, and you reminded me to say them after my prayers. But not instead of. Oh, no. Not instead of. They came to the open end of the walk. Reverend Mother and Anna stood together and fell silent. The air was fragrant. Below them, the lake shone under the trees. The hills lay softly against the evening sky. I admit, it is very beautiful. Haven't 
you always thought so, Reverend Mother? I've sometimes thought it too easy, like Irish conversational charm. However, occasionally the light does something to this uh, unaccountable landscape. It seems, well, for a minute or so, an island for, if not of, scholars. For, if not of. For, of. Is there a difference? Think about it. That scene from The Land of Spices was published in 1942. The character of the very English Reverend Mother of an Irish convent, set during the rise of nationalist feeling in the 1900s, intrigued Kate O'Brien. Father Conroy was a country boy, fresh from Maynooth. His work as chaplain to Laurel Hill was made somewhat difficult for him by the enigmatic fondness which he apprehended in this Reverend Mother. A cold English fish he called her angrily in his heart, and her English speech always alarmed him so much that in self-defence he became pugnacious. Oh, of course, they'll learn to parley vous, Reverend Mother. But is that so important, nowadays? Perhaps not, Father. But since they have chosen to be nuns, can it hurt them to make contact with Christian culture or to visit the fountainhead of their own order? We had nuns in Ireland before there was any in Belgium, Reverend Mother. She smiled. Had you? Well, certainly Ireland helped in impressing Christianity on Europe. So why should the Irish not go back now and reclaim for Ireland some of the cultivated things it planted? <laughs> you see, you have this notion that you can cultivate us, but we are a very ancient race, you know. There were too many answers to this absurdity. Reverend Mother dismissed them all and contented herself with smiling politely as she withdrew again to her post by the coffee pots. That's her best one, in my opinion, because it's handled technically so brilliantly. And the two uh, periods of time, you know, run in parallel, the youth and development of the nun, who's now the Reverend Mother in Ireland, who is overseeing the development of the little girl, Anna. And it's beautifully managed and woven together. And it gives you a very rich view of, a, of a, another woman's life, who again is thrown into crisis because of men's behavior. Uh, but there, you can see this girl who becomes the Reverend Mother, Helen Archer, you can see her as a very spoilt girl who assumed that her father's love was, you know, confined to her and who behaves in the most irrational fashion, uh, who really undergoes this period of madness, you might say, for a while because of her reaction to her father's, seeing her father in what is called so delicately the embrace of love. And um, I think you have there an instance of, in the book, you have an instance of sense finally conquering what you might call loosely sensibility. The girl allows her sensibility full reign. Uh, she's quite ruthless in the way she behaves. She got... It, it says openly that she came to hate her father. And it took her years to come back, which she does in Ireland when she receives the last letter from her father, he's dying, that um, it isn't for her or any human being to forgive in the sense in which God alone can forgive. 
In other words, human beings must not judge other human beings. Uh, they must allow God to do that. And it has taken her all these years to come back to this sort of balance in her nature. Now run along, child. And Anna, before you go, you will make what you must of life. You have gifts for life. Spend them. Spend them. Be the judge of your own soul. But never for a second, I implore you, never set yourself up as the judge of another. Do you hear me, my little one? Her life was very changeable, and she wasn't very long. She didn't stay very long in any one thing. She, uh, after Manchester, she spent not quite a year teaching in a school in Hampstead. Kate was advancing on life and as ill-prepared as her fictional characters in London, working and finding her way as a writer. She married, hastily, a Polish count. Polish count? Was a plain Joe not good enough? The lure of the exotic. Actually, he came from Amsterdam, but with a Polish title. Well, if he was a count, I'm a Dutchman. You'd never be taken for that. Kate learned all about the impossibility of giving the heart where it is not given back. She was in herself not the most domesticated of creatures. In the early weeks of her marriage, Kate telephoned a friend in a panic. Her husband was due in. Kate wanted to know how to clean the sink. And as for cooking, well... C'est la vie. Say no more. Ahead of her time. Her dashing husband dashed elsewhere. Within the space of a year, Kate had been single, married, and now was single again. She was to remain so for the rest of her life. Observing love, quiet and unquiet. Travelling, France, Spain, Belgium, mixing memory and desire. Observing from the vantage point of the anteroom, the affairs of a family set in a substantial house on the outskirts of Melik. It is the feast of all souls when Catholic families remember their dearly departed and try to cope with the emotions of their even dearer living. The house is resonant with the impending death of their mother. Agnes, unmarried and at home, is coping with the arrival of her sister Rosemary and of her sister's husband, to whom she feels guiltily attracted. Agnes goes outside into the long garden. Her uncle, the canon, is there. Child, uh, you'll catch your death of cold out here. I needed to get some air. Uh, what kind of a night did your mother have? She's putting a brave face on it. As indeed we must. God will be merciful. You will join me in praying for the best. If I knew what the best was. Child? God's will, or ours. His will becomes ours, and ours his. She doesn't want to die. Whosever will it is. His will be done. Did you not uh, offer communion for her this morning? N no, Uncle. I've not been at the altar rail for some time. I'm very disappointed. You of all people. I'm not your confessor, of course. But is there something you wish to tell me? Hmm? I would have thought at this time the extra effort, when we least like it, is what God appreciates. Now, if there is something... No. I, I slept badly, that's all. How's your father? I'll go in and see him. Oh, it's a great time for shooting woodcock. Did I ever tell you uh, how to get them fellas? You see, you stand between the trees as they come into nest. 
You've only a few seconds to blaze away. Bang, bang. I'll bring your father out with me. It'll take his mind off death. Oh, dear God. If I make a bargain with you, give up all thought of that which I most desire. If I give him up, will you give her up from this? Uh-huh. And indeed, uh-huh. Trying to ease her troubled mind, Agnes goes outside and meets her sister's husband. Oh, I hoped I might see you here alone. I've thought of nothing else for weeks. For weeks. Day and night. Hmm. Night and day. You see, it is real. Oh, it's real, all right. All this time, I wondered how you felt. I knew how I felt. But I did not. Now that I do, fantastic. Fantastic. What a word. I'll not deny myself that. Nor I. That you should feel the same. A fantasy. It is, but a real one. Is, but not to be. No, no, is, is, you know it. Knowing it. And knowing nothing will come of it. Knowing and nothing? Because knowing it, I will control it. Whereas, not knowing, who knows, in spite of myself. We do what we were meant to when we do it in spite of ourselves. Please, Vincent. If you value me, leave me be. And there, you see, she moves from this panoramic view to uh, an internal, highly intensive development, the exploration of, of, of a woman's feelings and development and so on. Kate O'Brien gives her women a moral life of their own. They have to work things out for, for themselves. And she also makes her women the vehicle of what I think is a, a perpetual dilemma in human life. That is the problem of, of love. It makes or mars people in life, as we know from experience. And in her books, you find the same thing happening. And women, after all, are naturally the subjects of this for a novelist compared with men, you know, uh, because the consequences of moral decisions can be much more uh, serious and graver for women than for men. If a woman ran off with a man in these days, uh, it, the man wasn't condemned. It was rather a brilliant achievement on his part, but the woman was. Uh, so therefore, if a woman decides, for instance, like Agnes in, in, um, in the anteroom, that she's going to follow her inclinations and she's going to run away uh, and lead a life on some beautiful Mediterranean shore, which is one of the fancies that she indulges in momentarily. If she were to do that, then, oh, fallen woman. But a man was never fallen. The man remained upright. <laughs> well, he, he, one of the he, he, had, he had to, to keep the woman fallen. <laughs> <laughs> but morally, I'm talking about now. But you see, that was just one of the terrible... Nowadays, that seems to be va vanished completely. I mean, women and men take partners, as they call them, and they don't bother their heads about marriage or anything of that kind. But then, that was a real dilemma for a woman. Now, the other interesting thing is, or uh, well, perhaps two interesting things, 
that love, even when it's gratified, ultimately doesn't last. And the other uh, thing is uh, that when a woman succeeds in conquering her inclinations, shall I put it that way, um, she does it not because of moral abstractions or rules that she has learnt from her parents or from her religious teachers. She does it because another kind of love intervenes, as in Agnes again, where it's the love for her elder, frivolous, gay little sister that prevents her from uh, snatching her husband and moving off with him. So that, I think, makes Kate O'Brien very original in her day, because after all, most of the people who wrote, it was the religious strictures that kept them, you know, in order. And she continues to go inside and explore the inner world of her women characters in different circumstances. Mary Lavelle, who is depicted at the beginning as a naive Irish girl who was prepared to follow you know, the lines laid down for her and was engaged to a suitable young man, but obviously not in love with him. But in due course, when he had decided he had enough money to keep them both, she was prepared to marry him. And then this sort of fancy takes her that she would like to go away and experience life on her own for a while before embarking on, on marriage. And she goes off to Spain. And there, two things happen to her, vital things. She discovers what it means to be really in love, uh, to be taken over by another person's personality. And um, she too discovers the nature of art, only in a, a, a more uh, stra stranger, more bizarre way than the picture she gives us in Pray for the Wanderer. Mary Lavelle go attends a bullfight, and she's taken out of herself by this experience. And she says, here is art, you know, lawless and unashamed, as if art would put aside all the normal rules of life, uh, and uh, the product of that art would enable you to be completely unashamed about it, just to say, here it is, this is the way it is. And then, after that, that's the, the psychosexual development of a young girl who's very naive and very innocent in the beginning, and then is quite bold and reckless. Her imagination was engaged, as it would have been by any accidental escape from the accepted life as she knew it. She was young and untravelled. All these details of a strange people's routine stimulated a response that life in Melik had not so far troubled. The wound of the bullfight was the gateway through which Spain had entered in and taken her heart. She did not know how much the afternoon had changed her, conventional, virginal and virtuous. It was a shock to learn that emotion at its most crude can, by relation to a little art, enchant. She wrote feebly to John. I know it's terrible and inexcusable, but it can be very beautiful too. And one man did the most unforgettable things. Once it started, I quite forgot to be sick, but I was awfully tired afterwards. And John wrote back, I can't think why you went, you weakling. 
What could there be beautiful in a bullfight? But she had, and it was. And willy-nilly, because of a few broken, sunlit images on an afternoon, she looked out on Spain with wider and more shadowed eyes than John could ever imagine. I'd say John back home has gone for his tea. You'll be telling me next you meet a bullfighter. Especially when she met the bullfighter, Juanito, and is invited to his home. The scene wore its usual evening beauty, floating in a mist of light. The band was playing in Playa Blanca as the ferry bumped against Cabante's pier. The children, nearer the landing, sprang ashore and she heard the voices raised above the general din in cries of rapture and astonishment. Juanito! Juanito! This is where I live, he said. She insists that the young man that she falls in love with her, who is the eldest son of the house where she is acting as a miss, as a governess, she insists that they should consummate their love. And she tells him he's not to worry about anything. If there were any consequences, that's her affair, you see. And uh, that's the way she behaves, in a way that no well-brought-up Irish Catholic girl was ever expected in these days to behave. Don't know about today. But then, certainly not. And that is one book that explores the development of the, the individual feminine psyche. Outrageous, immoral, and... Uh, um, immoral? No, I said that. Depraved? It, depraved, that's it. Said in the Irish Senate, no less, when Kate's books were denounced by an outraged Professor McGuinness. My goodness, McGuinness! Frothing! With indignation. That that a woman should think, let alone write such... such... Things. That's what bothered them, you see. Not so much what Kate's women thought, but that they should think for themselves at all, at all. And what's more, and what's more, wrote of finding two men, people of the same gender, mind you, in the embrace of love. Oh, unheard of in this Catholic country. And so was Kate for a while, when two of her books were banned by the censorship board. I remember Professor McGuinness in the Senate raving about the danger that this presented for young people and the, the horror of what was being implied and, oh, carrying on like an hysterical, like an hysterical woman, like a whole convent of hysterical women. <laughs> it's a different world, of course, altogether. But well, those of us who had common sense, you know, well, we were half amused and half horrified by the whole thing. Nothing happened until I came back to Ireland in '46, and Sir John Keane heard I was in Dublin and made me come and see him, and he said that I must fight it on myself now. I must appeal myself. There was no appeal board then, but he, he told me that if I wrote an appealing against the judgment and sent a £5 note as a sort of bona fide, I don't know what the cheque was for, that um, he, he would present this appeal to, I suppose, the Senate, I don't know who else he could have, and uh, that if they got the book released, I'd get my fiver back. So the book was released, and I got my fiver back, and Sir John said that I had to do it for the honour of the thing, and so that was that. So it was a victory against the censorship. That was in 1946 when she was already established internationally as a writer. She was then approaching 50, was the author of seven substantial novels and several plays and was much travelled. 1946 was also the year 
in which Lorna Reynolds met Kate O'Brien. And I remember the occasion when I met her for the first time. There was a group of people, women writers, called the Women Writers Club in the 40s in Ireland, in Dublin mainly. And uh, she had just published that lady, and they asked her to be their guest of honor at the annual dinner. And she accepted, graciously accepted. And then they asked me, they asked Michael Mugliamore to propose the toast to me to second it. And uh, she came up to me afterwards, and you think I was the personality of the, of the evening instead of herself. You know, she was so flattering about my ability to talk on my feet. That's the way she always described it. If you could put a few words together in public, you had the ability to talk on your feet. I hadn't even seen a photograph of her when I met her. I just had read her books, and as I think I already said to you, found here was an island that in the past that one understood because it was a middle-class island. It wasn't the, the island of the, the peasant and delightful as that had been, it was outside one's own experience. But I had grandfathers and grandmothers, you know, that I could relate to through the Considines, in Without My Cloak, you know, the, the family who rose from poverty to become, well, merchant princes in the limerick of the day, which he always called Melik. And that corresponded with Kate O'Brien's own family background? Well, she said in a letter to her sister Nance that she was writing about a family like the Omaras, into which Nance had lived. But I think it's an amalgam, a mixture. Uh, the, the, the idea, the leading idea being the rise from absolute poverty of the a, a section of Irish society, uh, from that poverty to the middle classes and to a life of affluence enjoying the good things, the polished mahogany and the uh, linen napery and the silver tea services and the rest of it, uh, but closely dominated by religious feeling, which again, of course, was authentic of the period. And at the turn of the century, when rebellion was in the air, even Irish nationalists clung to English Victorian manners and Irish Catholic morals. Oh, a heavy brew. As heavy as the drapes and fine furniture that decorated the O'Mara family home. Over on the Clare side of the river, where Kate spent many hours among ceremony and innocence. Where she looked out to the Clare hills and the countryside around Mielik. From where she imagined her horsey father had come. Memory and desire. And christened Limerick, Melik and used it as a place always to go back to, a townland of the mind. She used to say to me, oh, but re really, Limerick people are very nice and tolerant. Look how nice they are to you and me when we go back. <laughs> Pamela O'Malley de Christ, a long-time resident of Madrid. As a five-year-old in Limerick, neighbour of the O'Mara family, she had met Auntie Kate, and keeping that connection, and with her own life escapades behind her, she came to know Kate O'Brien in Spain, both now as adults. She presumably had already uh, had. I, I I wouldn't know, but I've no doubt there were there were her, the there were interventions during this weekend of people explaining how her books were taken off the shelves of libraries. Uh, although, in spite of the fact that the books were obviously sold, and she existed as a writer, she certainly, I think, particularly in Limerick. Uh, was regarded as something very scandalous. And 
today I was talking to Arthur Quinlan and he said that his wife has afterwards lived in, in Brew House where Kate had been born, his wife's family, and they were always embarrassed by the fact that they were had lived in the same house. And people would say, oh, in the house where that woman was born. So there was that sort of atmosphere in, in uh, Limerick. Uh, and she could be very contrary, you know, and she could fall into deep depressions. And she used to say about me that the way I dealt with that was I went into a deeper one myself and she <laughs> had to pull herself together <laughs> to deal with it. Uh, no, she was very complicated. And she also said about writing that she had always found it very difficult to say precisely what she wanted. But as she got older, it became more and more difficult. Uh, then she could have fits of I think she was a very volatile, had a very volatile temperament. She describes her father as having that sort of temperament, up in the skies one minute and down in the dumps the next, and she was like that. She could get into fits of gaiety and say, oh, no point in sitting around, we'll go on an expedition today, you know, and she'd hire a car and go off, and then she'd buy novelties for everybody in the family, in her own family, you know, there were children at the time. And then she could be absolutely in, in a fit of glooms the next day. Very volatile. And never, as I said, I think, ever really came home. Was always searching for some, always on the move, very restless. And when she was in air court, not, I beg your pardon, in, in Roundstone, she, uh, after some couple of years of spending the whole time there, she used to leave in the summer, always, set the house and go off to Spain or somewhere. She would come, I don't know, sort of, I think probably every four years or so. I, I recall five visits, maybe there were more, but when I was put it, trying to put the talk together, I tried to mem remember and then I said oh that was the time that such and such happened or oh, that was the time and I think I identified five visits and I do recall her last visit because she, her health was much worse she was in much worse shape and that was two years before she died. Was that a sad time? Yes I mean she was great fun it, that incident that I described her staying in the palace hotel and that the two of us shuffled into the into the dining room most unsuitably dressed was from that occasion and she wasn't in good health she had very swollen ankles and legs and that but she was just as pleasant and entertaining to be with and talk to as ever ultimately her clothes got rather shapeless you know the clothes she wore, wore were rather and she <laughs> sometimes would be very irritated by her own appearance and she said to me once i'm getting to look like an estonian housekeeper <laughs> and she, she all, always carried, you know, in these days you could get big men's handkerchiefs made of paisley cotton with patterns on them. She carried these around because she used them as dusters. She couldn't stand untidiness or any kind of uh, what looked like neglect. And so she spied a bit of dust on her desk or anywhere out would come the big man's handkerchief and she'd swipe it across the desk. There is a fashion nowadays to out people in their uh, sexual orientation. And at several seminars, I've seen Kate adopted as some kind of icon of uh, lesbian womanhood. Well, uh, I wouldn't know 
anything about that because she didn't show any, I mean, as far as, I, of course she had friends, but this is what I find so annoying about categorizing people as lesbians. Why shouldn't women have women friends, you know? And in the 19th century, for instance, the maids often went with the, their mistresses on their wedding nights. I didn't know that. No, well, there we live and learn, you see. Uh, I mean, why can't there be friendship between women? There's friendship between men. Why can't there be friendship between women? And why is it... But this is something that has become characteristic of our age. Everything has to be explained in sensual terms, and it all goes back to Freud, who is being discredited too, as so many people... <laughs> Are currently discrediting him. Yes, yes. Uh, nonetheless, she cut this uh, rather unusual-looking, certainly notable and noticeable figure uh, by her middle years, wherever she visited, whether it was in yes, the well, West of uh, Ireland or... You see, she had grown heavy then, and what was charming when you're a young flapper can uh, look a bit outre, shall I put it that way, when you're older. She'd grown very heavy... She also used to say, as an alternative to the Estonian housekeeper, I'm getting to look like one of the more decadent Roman empire emperors. Can you trace <laughs> her? She had a kind of Roman uh, face, you know, the profile. She was very beautiful, judging by her photographs when she was young, but that had all vanished by the time I met her. Was drink a factor in that, do you think? Well, I don't know, but she certainly did drink a little too much as she got older, and she used to say that everybody drank during the war in England. You, you know, it was a way of sort of saving your sanity and putting the immediate horrors out of your mind. Uh, and, of course, if you're addict an addictive... Well, it's not even a personality, it's a, nor a temperament, it, it's your physical makeup. If you, you have a tendency to addiction, then, of course, it would be very hard to stop doing what you'd been doing for these years. There have been times when I've lived this way and that way, but my choice has always been to... And it, it has its disadvantages, I know. And as you get older, you, you notice them more. But all the same. For, I think, at any rate, for a writer or for anybody concerned with creative work it's almost essential to be alone even if it's often lonely even if it's often disappointing but um, I can't imagine uh, being badgered around by, by somebody else who sort of half owned you know, when I'm trying to write a novel when I'm trying to get on with what I have to do and of course temperaments vary but for me uh, I, I accept the disadvantages, even now, in old age. I see uh, that uh, sometimes there would be, it would be nice if there was somebody else to put on the kettle or, you know, to like, put wood on the fire. But still, I like being alone. Well, the last time I saw her was in Borton, the village in Kent where she'd gone to live after leaving Ireland. And she she was shaky and frail, and actually, I committed a sin that no 
uh, guess should ever do. I arrived with a very bad cold and it developed and I gave it to her so that when I was leaving, she was shakier than when I came. And, um, well, you know, she hadn't been able to finish the new novel. She was writing a new novel called Constance. And she read me some chapters there. And it was then she said to me that she'd always found it difficult to write, to say exactly what she wanted, but now it was even more so. And um, she couldn't, and that was a great worry to her, that she couldn't get on with the, the writing. She didn't have much money, but some of the royalties kept coming in, and she had, she was on the civil list by then, you know, the English civil list. The English can be very strange and generous in their own way. And she also had a, short, a small, um, uh, what would you call it, allowance or grant, grant, I suppose is the word, from um, our Arts Council here. So, you know, she wasn't starving or anything like that. And as you get older, you, you, you don't stravague. That was a favourite word of hers. She, she likes stravaguing around the countryside. You don't stravague as, as much as you do. She has that on her tombstone. And I think she had a feeling always uh, that the artist is uh, never at home, is always looking for home, but never gets there. 